Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. Henry Sledge is calling me as we speak. I just want to say thanks to each and everybody for your continued support of the podcast. We are taking the day off because, well, it's Valentine's Day, and that's what we want to do, you know. Mama's happy, then everybody's happy. So what we're going to do is we're going to replay an interview I did with, in honor of Jeff and Henry, who are big Air Corps guys. Here is an interview I did um, back in 2019 with George Peschen, who was a uh, Army Air Corps veteran. So enjoy this interview. Enjoy the time with your old ladies and maybe your old man. You know, it's 2022. We can't judge. But anyhow, enjoy your Valentine's Day with your loved ones. And we will talk to you next week with our guest, fellow military podcaster, West Point graduate, and TikToker, Preston Stewart. We will talk to you guys next week. And we are recording live remotely from beautiful Spring Hill, Florida. I have to say this is my first time out in Spring Hill. And being a Kentucky boy, I have to say the horse farms that are surrounding the area reminds me of a very dry uh, Kentucky with some um, Spanish pines and palm trees. But uh, we're out here for a good reason. I am sitting down with World War II vet George Preshen. That's correct. Got that right, George? Yes, that's correct. First and foremost, let me thank you for all your time and allowing me to come out and invade your home and set up my studio here in your living room and just completely take over on this beautiful Saturday. And I hope all things are going well for you. Uh, Very well, thank you. So last weekend was your birthday. And your grandchildren went out onto uh, social media and they asked people to send in birthday cards because you want to see how many birthday cards you can get for your 95th birthday. How many cards did you end up raking in? About 100. About 100? Probably took you all day to read all those, huh? Oh, yeah. I had a lot of help. Were you surprised at the age range of people who sent you cards? Oh, yeah. I was surprised at the whole thing, really. I just hope we were forgotten by now. No, you guys will never be forgotten. I mean, there's new books, new movies coming out monthly. I've had authors on this show, I've had uh, producers on the show who are constantly just putting out media to make sure that that never happens. So let's go back a few years, shall we? Do you remember where you were on Pearl Harbor? That's that's really going back. (laughs) Did you end up enlisting or did you get drafted? I was drafted. Drafted what year were you drafted? 42, yeah. What branch were you drafted into? Uh, The Army. The Army? Do you remember the feeling you got when you got the uh, draft letter from the uh, government telling you it was your turn to serve? I was young, yeah, and I just took it by stride. Yeah. Do you remember where where your boot camp was? Where'd you go do your basic training at? Atlantic City. Atlantic City, up in New Jersey, huh? Yeah. How was that? Were you constantly trying to sneak out of camp to get down to the park? I was in a trademark hotel, and uh, at one time that was elite. But when we had it, it was pretty de- pretty bad shape. No, oh, yeah, all run down. Well, uh, they ch- they cleaned it up. They, they scrubbed the floors, GI'd the floors. That's not luxury. It's just you're into service. Well, nothing back then was luxury. I mean, you're you're in a rundown hotel. You could have been in a cardboard cornice hut in a field somewhere oh, waiting for the uh, rain. Uh, well, I I tried to um, a cadet, you know, and I was uh, accepted. To, to fly as a, but uh, I got injured one day. I got hit in the eye, and and they uh, they washed me out, and 
So they asked me if I want to fly as a flight engineer. And I, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Do you remember how you got injured? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, a chip came out of the engine. I was holding the fire extinguisher on the outside, safety, and a, fly, a little flying chip came out and went in my eye. Wow. And they had a, a uh, I was very lucky. There was a surgeon within 20 miles of us. And I went up there and he told me I was very lucky. The ship came out, it was a little hook in one piece. And I know my vision wasn't affected. Well, that's a good thing, because if your vision was affected, of all the branches of the military, um, the Army Air Corps is the one place you've got to have good great vision. vision. Yeah. So I like, I came around good. And uh, and I, a flight engineer is, uh, he, he stands up front between the pilot and co-pilot, mm -hmm. calls off the airspeeds on takeoff, does anything that has to be done mechanical to the plane. Okay. Clear the bombs when they go out. And everything that has to be emergency generators is as part of his job. So he has a pretty good sized job. You're kind of like the producer on a radio show. Your job is to do all the things that the host can't do because they're flying a plane or you know, doing their job. And so yeah. while they're flying and the yeah. navigator's doing his thing, if something yeah. happens... Well, if an engine would suddenly give trouble, uh, as an engineer, I was my job to do something about it. And I'd, uh, I'd feather it and turn a blade into the wind, and, and that would stop the engine. And uh, we had that happen, and we had oil flowing out of the engine, but as soon as we stopped it, the oil stopped coming out as a safety factor. Sure. So I, I enjoyed being an engineer. During basic training, when you had your injury and then asked if you want to be a flight engineer, obviously if you're doing the mechanical side of the plane, you got to do a lot more, I would assume, more classwork. you got to learn the ins and outs of the, of the, in, the engines and the mechanical sides of the planes. Yeah, well, Obviously, I, you probably didn't need to go as depth as the mechanics would, or did you? Well, I was a, I, I originally was a mechanic. Okay. So uh, it was easy for me to come back and fly as an engineer. I already had the training. What plane were you assigned to? B-24s originally, and later on we flew B-17s in combat. Which plane did you prefer? Well, I liked the 17. It was a good plane. Very durable. I interviewed a gentleman who was a pilot last week named Keith Anderson, and he said the same thing. He said he liked the 17 better than the 24. I, I watched the uh, shells go through the wing on it, and you wouldn't believe it would stay up. But they're a wonderful airplane. Yeah. So when you were stationed in Jersey and you're going to school for mechanic school, you yeah. guys do cadence on the boardwalk at night? And then you were also, during the blackouts, for those listening who don't realize this, even though the United States wasn't in direct contact with Germany, on our west coast and east coast, we still had blackout drills where people turn out the lights, you would have your blackout curtains, so that if there were ships out in the ocean, they had a harder time targeting um, targets of opportunity. And so when the, the coastline were blacked out, you, you had uh, submarine patrol duty, is that correct? Well, we we walked the boardwalk, uh, looking for anything strange, and we were guards, basically. Uh, yeah, look for U-boats or anything else. Anything. We reported everything we saw, and uh, it was up to the up to the brass to know what to do after that. And we did a parade in New York. Sure. That was to build the the morale up and uh, people from people. Sure. 
And, uh, Gotta sell those war bonds. That was neat, yeah. But that was just for the building, the, the home home army, mm-hmm. building morale up. Yeah. There's two armies. There's a home army, and then there's a, oh, a, a foreign war. Sure. When you go into combat, you go into the foreign war. The home army, when you're overseas, you're directly at war. When you take off in the morning, you go right into enemy territory. You go right into Germany, you drop bombs, all to pick target. But if you're in a home army, that's different. They couldn't fly from home yeah. anywhere overseas. Well, yeah. not to mention the fact that you need the home army to, and that's, thank God that, at that time. We that's, had, that's the backup army. And not only that, but thank God we had production plants back then. Nowadays, we don't make anything here. Yeah. Luckily, back then, we had train plants, car plants, that re- tractor plants that oh, were yeah. pulled to make all the equipment we need. Yeah. A few episodes back I had on the archivist from the John Deere company. Yeah. And he was talking about how John Deere was making airplane parts and uh, gun parts and all that. And so our entire industrial side of our country turned into that home army as well, not to mention the guys who were training, but the, the logistic army. Yeah. You know, you had pe- to find people at the Dickies Uniform Company making uniforms yeah. and everything else. So, a little while after you were stationed in New Jersey, you found yourself in Michigan, and you're working on the uh, Pratt & Whitney program? Well, Pratt & Whitney engine's a 14-cylinder radial engine, and uh, that white engine's a 9-cylinder radial engine. And then the two engines at that time were in most of the plants. Those engines, I mean, obviously by design to carry the amount of weight, because obviously the, the plane itself's not that heavy, but with the payload on there, yeah. the men on there, and the environment which they're going into, let alone the, the cold in the air, but the potential of getting shot and hit with flak and debris. By design, those things had to be workhorses. And I imagine they were almost over-engineered just to provide a little bit of a protection on them? You could run on three. They were very dependable. The radial engines at that time were worthy engine. Yeah. So, they... Uh, the only other engines that the fighters were using were V-12s, you know, uh, Rolls-Royce that was built in, in England, mm-hmm. and uh, there was another one we built, but I can't think of it. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it either, but I guess it didn't perform as well as the Rolls-Royce engine. Rolls-Royce was a better engine. Yeah. More power. More power, more consistent. Yeah. We were studying what an engine looks like when it has problems in it. Uh, we had engines set up and problems put on them, and sometimes they would throw a torque of flame out the back, 60, 80 feet, and we had them out on the river, so that we'd go out over the river, and uh, we would try to analyze the problem. You know, just looking at the problem with the, the, uh, the result of the problem. Sure, because when you're stationed in a 17 and you're at altitude and something happens to your engine, it's definitely beneficial to be able to look out the porthole and kind of make an estimate of what's going on with it by sight. Well, in in combat, if you you lose an engine, you immediately feather it, turn the the blades into the wind so it's not doing any drag on the plane, and then put extra power on the outer engine, the one engine, in order to, so we go, we'll fly straight, you know, and then compensate otherwise, you know. But uh, it, it works. <laughs> now, as your time in service progressed, much like a lot of the guys at the time, you get sent overseas, you get your combat missions, you find out where you're going. 
Do you remember the first place you were stationed when you went over to Europe? Well, I was stationed in England, 90 miles north of London, Glatton, I believe that's, and, uh, and we flew out of there all the time after that. But the missions were short, we were just flying into France at first, and every, and every, every day they, as they retreated, our missions got longer and longer. And after a while we were flying round trip of 12 hours just to get into, into as far as they had backed up. And uh, so it was getting longer and longer. Obviously, early on in the war, your head's on a swivel. You're excited. You're, con you know, you're. It's all new to you. But as as you find more and more missions, and they're getting longer and longer, how do you keep yourself alert? And you know, obviously, a lot of that's over friendly land. The further we progress in, into into the country, but that doesn't prevent well, the whopper from coming your way. So how do you guys stay alert and? Keep awake on those long. Well, all you do is fly and sleep. Sleep in ships. Yeah, nothing else. I mean, yeah. You know, when hours off, you rest, and then when you and the rest of the time you're in in flight. And even on our days off, we flew practice runs. You know, we were in the air all the time, and it is hard. It's twice as hard to work it in the air uh, at high altitude as it is on the ground. So it's exhausting when you go 12 hours. That's like 24 hours, but. Uh, it, it's exhausting, so you have to be careful. And I can imagine not only spending that time in the air, but you're also in those big leather and wool jackets and the pants and the insulated uniforms, right? Yeah, we big yeah, gloves on. We wore, wore a mask, mm -hmm. uh, and the oxygen was the true hoses that were plugged into the into the dash, whatever wherever we had, and uh, that that had to be careful. Once in a while, they they'd fall out on you. And uh, you know, the first thing you notice is it's getting dark, and you say, and then after a while you realize that you're know, lack of oxygen, your your blood turns dark, and when you realize that's happening, you hunt for that oxygen hose and make sure it's plugged in. And but uh, it happened over there, and I, I, it was frightening. But finally, when it went together, it's like lights came on, yeah. and as my blood turned clear again. So it's always it's always a risk, you know. It's, it's not. It's not like the modern, sure, pressurized hull and pressurized suits. <laughs> yeah. Pressurized everything. Yeah, everything's nice, streamlined, and ergonomic. Meanwhile, yeah. you got guys on thirty cal machine guns trying to load belts with big mittens on. And uh, our bathroom's a little P tube that you. And I don't think I ever used it, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but now is. Is that built into the uniform, or is that something you yeah. kind of had to place in there gently? Uh, it's, it's, it's just hanging on the wall. Oh, okay. Yeah, we had, we were all friends. Sure. <laughs> well, I mean, at that point, you guys have been through basic training. Um, last thing you're worried about is someone seeing you undressed. I mean, yeah. they, they got that out of you quick. Yeah, we don't have that problem. Yeah. Yeah, that electric sealer wall was, uh, had electric wiring in it. And that was nice because it... it, 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 it it heated your body right in the suit. Sure. And that was that was because uh, the ship was uh, was no no heat in the ship. It wasn't pressurized. So that's the only heat you had. An electric suit. How tall are you? Um, half inch under six foot. That's that's pretty tall for back then. I mean, it's pretty tall for nowadays too. And obviously, being somebody who's six five, you can understand the phrase "it's a short man's world." We're just living in it. Well, I I, uh, I operated the turret, which is in the middle of the plane. Yeah. And uh, the tail gunner, uh, that's different. Now you need a small guy because you had to crawl back over to get to. It. Well, even 
even as you go from one part of the plane to the other, you got to crawl through the bulkhead passages. And being a tall yeah, guy, well, sure. you can go, you can go all the way back, all across by the tail. Yeah, I mean, you can walk. You know, I just know at some carefully, point, carefully, carefully. I just know at some point in time, you probably had to hit your head once or twice on those bulkheads. No, uh, it's 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 funny. Yeah. But you got to be careful. You lose your balance. The windows are all open, so oh yeah, you don't want to fall out. Especially <laughs> if you're over by the uh, yeah, well, the two big back windows and they had guns in them. Sure. And uh, we were oxygen masks and all, and we fire guns right right on the on the windowsill, as you would say. Now, one of the things, obviously, they don't express too much in the Hollywood movies and the TV shows is the lack of insulation in those planes, let alone the the lack of any sort of muzzle protection coming off those machine guns. At the end of a long shift or a long battle with those machine guns going off, the engines rattling along, how did you deal with the... I'm sure you had to have extreme headaches, the ringing in your ears. I mean, how did you guys handle all that back then? Well, I was fortunate enough that we didn't do a lot of shooting. I mean, during the war, you didn't always shoot. You were shot at more than you did any shooting. And the, sh- the shrapnel used to come up. and The flak? Yeah, and it, and it would hit the bottom of the ship, and it sounded like somebody threw something. Like a handful of pebbles at a yeah. soda can? Yeah. Well, I, we were, I had a, a steel vest I wore, but I never wore it. I used to stand on it, because everything was coming up. Sure. And the guy that before me said, it ain't going to come in sideways, stand on it. <laughs> and I took his word for it. How heavy were those early flak vests? Pretty heavy, and uh, there were steel pieces of but I didn't, I didn't, I stood on it all the time. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's hard enough to do that without carrying that around. Sure, I can imagine. Yeah, so it was a lot easier, and uh, it was where it, it was safer that way. The yeah. first time you flew into flak fire, and then it hit your plane, whether it was major or, as you said, you know, it losing its velocity and just bouncing off the plane, how, do you remember, obviously it's a long time ago, but you have a recollection of your first thought when it happened, like, oh, well, we're into it now, or here what, we go? What I remember all the time is uh, we went over a little lower than normal. We were, we were down around 10,000 feet, which we were way usually over 20. And uh, that gave the ground crew, the uh, 88s, which the Germans were, they could reach us. Sure. And I, I watched the shells come up and go right through the wing. And uh, they were going through 10 feet apart, or better, plus or minus. And, uh, and when it got around and, and it came in, I, was, I heard a hit, hit right near me, and then I fell down. And when I was laying on the floor, I had to check and see if I had anything left. But by some miracle, I was in one piece. And, uh, and so after I, after I checked myself out, and I crawled forward, and a pile of pile were five feet. Oh, yeah. there we go. Right, I thought. Oh, you missed it. <laughs> you know, I think it's a great testament to the engineering of those planes. You see these photos, and I'm sure you've seen it in real life, where they're just, the, t- the tail fins almost completely was, gone. I've seen pictures of B-7s where they have to wing off. And yet and they make it home. Yeah, they fly, they come home. Half of the cockpit's gone, or the yeah. rear tail's gone. Well, we had a lot of big holes in ours, I know that. One came through right next to me, because I didn't see it, and it took the uh, plexiglass out of the turret, and I got, that got in my eyes. So I was on the floor, I was blind, and I, I thought, 
I better make sure I'm in one piece and my legs were there, you know. Mm. And by some miracle, I was all right. But uh, it's frightening. Did you receive a Purple Heart for that? Nah. Wasn't written up? Nah. No hearts. Yeah. You got to go to the hospital for that. No, you just wiped yourself off one bunch away, huh? Yeah, well, I never even thought about that time. Yeah, I don't, you don't fly with that in mind. <laughs> yeah, sure. I was just glad we could show any air, get up front, Jack being the engineer, and help the pilot uh, uh, bring the plane home. So. At any time, did you ever have the misfortune of uh, having to bail out or lose a plane? I never bailed out. I went through tests. They used to, on the ground, put a chute on you, rev the plane up, and pull the cord and drag it down the runway. But I never, I never jumped out. I, I didn't like the way those chutes looked. They looked pretty ragged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think in the right, under the right conditions, I would have been next to the pilot. <laughs> You know, I've seen videos of the training, whether it's for the airborne or for the pilots, where they hook, hook you guys up to the parachutes and turn on the fan. Yeah, they, they do that out there for training. And people think, well, that looks fun, but they don't realize it's, that's got to bang you up. you got to yeah, get pretty well, bruised and, you know, yeah. hopefully there's no rocks out there, but anybody who's been drugged by a horse or anything knows that that's not a fun well, we, we were young, thank God, you know. And our, yeah. And our bones were a little softer. The skin's a little more uh, pliable. Now it would have killed me. <laughs> Kill me, and I'm only 41. I, I'm not looking forward to it. We were already 18. And that's one of the things that stands out for me as I do this, and I have the pleasure to talk to people like George. Is especially look like the photos of D-Day or the Marines landing in Guadalcanal. Uh, Sidney Phillips famously turned 17 years old on Guadalcanal. Yeah, that's that's it's amazing. We're just the children who win the war, who now, fight the wars. Nowadays, you ask a 16-year-old to mow the grass, and it's. Do yeah. I have to? You can't give an 18-year-old to help around the house, let alone go out and defend the world. I mean, we're, we were literally saved by high schoolers and college kids. And it's just so mind-boggling. Now, obviously, you know, we got to adjust for life expectancy and all that, as famously George Washington first uh, commanded his first troops at the age of 16 because, you know, you got to adjust to life expectancy. But still, I mean, to go from being in high school, being a freshman in college to... Okay, you're going to boot camp. A lot of you guys have never been out of your towns at that point. Next thing you know, you're on a train heading off to God knows where. And then you're over in Europe flying, marching, driving tanks, what what has it. And it's up to you to get the job done. And there aren't kids, really. Yeah. Well, you went there as kids. You guys came back as men, clearly. I hope so. <laughs> Uh, Did you take the northern route? Oh, you yeah. didn't fly over. You are on the ship. Yeah, we went over to Manhattan. It was a... Uh, the biggest boat, I think, that Marines had. Yeah. And my buck was right at the bow. They said, oh, the Air Force don't get seasick. <laughs> <laughs> Almost died up there. <laughs> yeah, they said the Air Force don't get seasick, and then the Navy guys like, we need the Marines to carry our sea bags. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, the Air Force was just be becoming. Sure. And we were Army. Army Air Corps. Army Air Corps. And we were proud of that. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Uh, and uh, that was different. You're dealing with rough seas, you're dealing with stale air. You probably want to get up on deck as much as you can, but clearly with rough seas, that's probably... You know what the battle boat's like when it's, it's going up and down. It goes up 10 feet and falls 20. Yeah, and I, we sat in the front of that thing, and I swear we're never going to make it. Not to mention your racks were attached to the bulkhead on a hinge and then held up with chains. I, I imagine your racks would probably bounce up and down. My, my radio man was so seasick. 
he kept throwing up. So I put him in the bottom. We had stacked bag beds. So like I put him in the six, bottom and with, his, <laughs> with his helmet. And I didn't, everybody felt seasick, but some don't throw up. Sure. And, uh, well, going to the mess hall sometimes is pretty hard to, yeah. to carry the food back. <laughs> but uh, you have to eat, you yeah. know, whatever you can get down. But it's an, it's an experience. But we're all young, you know, we're not soldiers like, in the sense that we were well trained and we were all young. Not to mention, I mean, granted that environment's completely different, but yeah. every young teenager has a little bit of a sense of a feeling of invincibility almost. Well, you were taught to believe that you, you could win. Yeah. That was part of training and your basic training. You taught you you were going to win. Yeah. Because you had God on your side. God and country. Yeah. Yeah, we felt eventually we were going to get it. Uh, yeah. It, 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 that seemed impossible at times, but we did it. We won it, so. Well, luckily we had such great allies on our side. I mean, at the time we got involved in the war, I mean, Britain had been in, in combat since 39, yeah. 40. I mean, they're already three years in before we even got over there, four years in. Well, I remember when the, when the war stopped, I said to the radio man, how many missions we got? He said, 30. Up to then, I didn't even know what mission we were on. Because the quota was 34? I know it started out like a 25, and they at kept the, raising at the At the end, you stayed it was over, I guess. Yeah. You know, nobody was counting. Sure. And nobody said, oh, I'm going home after a mission. We were here, the war was over. Yeah. And uh, and we were doing, we were getting there, so we did a pretty great. I guess a lot of guys kind of took on the opinion or the feeling that when your number's up, your number's up. You just go out and do it and don't think about it too much. Oh. Something, yeah, well, that's not a bad feeling. It's yeah. A, you know, I, I never thought about. I never thought about it. Really. I, I, I just, I just did the job I was trained to do, and that kept me alive. So, and, uh, and how many missions did you do? Thirty missions. Thirty missions. Yeah, each one was a target, and uh, we were, we we, we got uh, judged on how close we hit the targets and how close, how well we bombed the areas and all. And we did very good. The, uh, I forget the name of the targeting systems they had back then, but those things were just, they were the top of the technology for the time. Well, see, we were flying, and it got longer and longer the missions got. Mm -hmm. And finally, we got all, all the way into Berlin, and, and uh, we had to go be, beyond Berlin, and we were running out of gas. So we flew ahead and went right into Russia, and we landed in Russia with their permission. Yeah. And they gassed us up so we could get back. That's how long they were getting. We didn't have enough fuel in those close planes to do that. Uh, and then they fueled us up and we flew back. Yeah, luckily they were on our side. I mean, <laughs> Russia had their problems, but you know, it's one of those things where we'll ignore your problems and take care of this one over here. They were an ally then, so yeah. Yeah. You know, I always heard about the big women and all, but here comes three women carrying a, a three-blade propeller, one on each blade over the head. And I thought, holy mac, that's just what I heard somebody tell me one time. And I looked up and they had it up on a wing. They put the gas in, yeah. they filled the tanks, and uh, we had women all doing all that because the men were all, all, the yeah, all on the front lines. So, and I uh, guess if it was here, it would be the same. You know, uh, regardless of what the politics are, it's nothing brings a group of people together, especially a nation, than being in a situation like that. Uh, so we, we become united. It's the great reset button, if you will. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. We had to get up early enough 
to be briefed. Yeah, you'd go into the flight briefing. Yeah, we go into flight briefing, and that's before daylight. Sure. And uh, and when we got in there, they they would once they briefed you, and, and if you didn't go on that mission, you didn't leave there. They couldn't have that information leak out. Sure. It was that secret, and uh, so that target had to be kept, because they'd made us there if we, they got that information. I'm, I'm laughing a little bit, because on last week's episode, when I was interviewing Mr. Anderson, he said that uh, they got up to do their flight briefing, and I guess it's somebody's job to go wake up the mess officers so they can start preparing the food, and that person failed to do so. And all the pilots like, we're not leaving until we get breakfast, and so they basically stayed there until the mess officer got up, prepared their breakfast, and they finally ate and left, but they refused. We're not going on this mission until we get some food in our stomach. I, I can't, that's uh, so long ago. We, we were still using um, mess kits. We yeah. didn't have a kitchen. We didn't have any of that. Uh, we were, the English did, but the Americans didn't have it, so they, had, they were on field rations, and we would have to get up and, and, and get in line and and walk up and they'd uh, have a metal tray they put mm -hmm. the stuff on. Uh, but on the way back, uh, when we get home, they, uh, it, was, it, uh, it was different now. We're, we're, it's hard to remember. <laughs> Is there any uh, particular times when you're out on R&R, &R, you got to get away from your, your, your base and go well, out? What, what's R&R? &R? <laughs> okay, so you, you never had the opportunity to go well, out when we, we were going into combat, we were flying training. Yeah. We, we never stopped flying. So you never got to visit anywhere while you were over there? You went to London at some point? Yeah, at one point, uh, yeah, I remember. They have, it, they have it underground, like, mm -hmm. like we do. Sure. Subway? Yeah, and, yeah, and uh, you can go into in London. But once you get back there, close to the base, you got to get a cab. they got a lot of cabbies. And you'd have, but the guy would always charge us, like it was, say, $2 to the base. He calls you Sky two dollars, and I <laughs> gouged you guys. Yeah, they gouged us. I couldn't believe they did that. But what they, was the old saying? Uh, the Americans are overpaid, oversexed, and over here. And over and taken over. <laughs> yep. I met a young girl, and she invited me to come home and have dinner with them. And uh, of course, I said, "Right, I'd be pleased." Sure. And uh, they were very poor. Uh, I remember the very nice people, very nice, and uh, they told me that. Uh, for dessert, they're going to have uh, marmalade, and I thought that's that was a big thing. They were something they served for them. They were going to give me. Well, you not know, only that, but they were so fact, nice. they were so nice. The fact that not only are they sharing their marmalade with you, but their food in itself. You're basically you're bringing home an extra mouth for the evening. Yeah, and they're on food rations just yeah. like we were back yeah. here. Well, they treated me really wonderful, and, and uh, I was glad to be fighting for nice people. You know. Now, you were over there near the ending of the war. When you were in London, they have been getting bombed for quite a bit for quite a while. Did you see any of the devastation from the bombings, or were you more into the... Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I can remember this anymore. I was, the, uh, I was in London. You hear this noise, like a beep, 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 and everybody's running. But I don't know what we're running for. And that's the one of buzz bombs going over. And then after that, I knew I'd hunt for a doorway or something. And uh, and I I was uh, a fighter one over, and uh, and, uh, and I would jumped in a doorway. And as uh, as he passed over, I heard a whistle, and this bomb came down and landed, a little bomb, scare bomb like, and landed it must be 50 feet from me. And I was huddled in a doorway, and I thought 
that's just a scare bomb. That wasn't big enough to hurt you. Yeah. And they were dropping that just to terrorize the people. Well, that, it terrorized me. <laughs> well, and that's one of the things the Germans were good about, is yeah. psychological warfare. Psychological warfare. I mean, you got this V-1 and the V-2 rockets that had distance and could cause devastation, but also just the, the sound, because... Yeah. You know, jet engines, they invented them. Well, that's the only time I got involved in a bombing. Yeah. I was obviously on the, on the other side of it. Yeah. But uh, that was scary. But those citizens, you know, they would hear that scream of that rocket engine come over. And oh, their whole life just had to stop until it was over. Oh, when you hear that bomb coming down screaming, a scream of, wow, it takes your breath away. Because <laughs> you don't know what to expect. Sure. We saw them coming. We were in, uh, flying to a target. And they passed over us. Rockets going to England, you know. And we just uh, we, we just stay away from them, you know. But I I said there they go, send that rocket and it, it's shaped like a big tar tar torpedo, and it's it, it was headed right for for London. And I thought, wow. But uh, usually you don't see them. You know, they're they're up high, and they they usually go very high, and and it's so scary. It was a scary war. But if you the people on the ground, that was frightening. Yeah. There was no place to hide. Now, out of your 30 missions, obviously you guys bombed some targets of opportunity. You bombed uh, manufacturing plants. Uh, usually, yeah, usually targets. Targets? Yeah. Like we bombed a field that was a gas dump, and uh, you couldn't tell it. But after the, the bombs went down, it, the whole ground came up, and we must have hit it. Did it lift your plane up? We, we could have collided. Yeah, I just didn't know if the, the force helped helped you reach altitude quicker than normal. I couldn't tell you right now. Yeah. <laughs> that was frightening. Yeah, I can see, see the ground come up. The English flew all the night flights. They didn't do targets. They did cities, and of course, that's how they were being treated. Sure. So they didn't think there was nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah, at that point. But well, we did we did targets, and uh, it's not, it's really better to do targets. But see, they were doing over at night, so. They just start, you find a light on the ground, boys. Just hope it ain't you. It ain't you, right? Yeah. And so you're flying your missions. You're taking some hits. You've seen some 88s go through your wings. But luckily, as you stated before, you never had to bail out. Yeah, we're bombing. And uh, my job is flying in there to make sure all the bomb base clear before mm -hmm. we close the doors. And I look back, and there's a bomb hanging on one pin. All the rest run out. And I, I told I told Apollo, I said, we got a bomb hanging on one one pin. We had a guy that was trained in bombs. I said, send him back with me, we'll see what we can do. And uh, I got back there and it, I didn't know whether it spun out or not. It has a little wheel on it that spins. If it spun out, it's done its slot, then it just hit, it'll set it off. Yeah. So I didn't know. So we tied the propeller on it and strapped it down and and try to tie it in somehow. Well, well, we had to walk out on that little narrow platform in, in the Bombay. Little catwalk? Yeah, it was about six inches wide. And, uh, oh yeah, we had shoes oxygen, mm -hmm. and a tank under our arm. We were at high altitude yet, so, yeah, it was really hard to work like that, but. Yeah. Uh, and it was a big help having somebody come out and help me. Sure. But if you're afraid of heist, you don't want to go. Yeah. Well, yeah, I used to just look down. I, I wasn't afraid of heights. So. The whole bottom of the plane's open at that point. We fell out, you wouldn't have to worry. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we, when we got it set, well, best we could, then we softly started home. 
and we brought it back. That was a soft landing. I mean, it was the longest ride home, huh? Yeah, a long ride and, and landed in an abandoned ship. <laughs> and left the thing sitting on the side of the runway. You ran out like there's a skunk in the privy, huh? Yep, get away. <laughs> Who knows? It might have been that, might have spun out. Yeah. And uh, so the ground crews had to take it out. I bet they were waiting on you, huh? They didn't want it either. No. <laughs> That's a rough job, EOD work. Yeah, they had to go out and, uh, and uh, take the timer out of it, out of the one. You know, once you got that out, then it was safe to handle again. Oh, well, it's all happened so quick. <laughs> yeah, things happen quick. Sure. At a certain point, the word comes down that uh, Hitler's dead. The war's over. Uh, what was your feeling? Do you remember... We were like, okay, on to the next thing, or you finally, or what? What was it like to the get tr- that news? The trouble was right before that, when they announced that, we went over. I guess they had, they had news that we didn't hear, and uh, and we flew over low to hit targets, too low, and we got we got bombed apart. Shells were going right through the wing of the plane, and uh, what about it? Uh, Ten feet apart, they were going right through the wing, and uh, that should never happen because we were way too low. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the army itself has 88 guns that can shoot that height, and somebody miscalculated, and we got we got a shot up pretty good. But there we, this was the end. Yeah. You know? And I, I hate to get killed on the last day, and that just turns you over. You know, I, I read a book. It's called The Last Fire Pilot. And um, I forget the pilot's name. He he was the um, wingman for the main author in the story. They flew down in the Pacific, and the same thing happened to them. They had to go out and fly this last mission, but as they were up in the air, the Japanese signed the peace treaty, but they never got word. Oh, yeah. His wingman got shot down. Wow. He was, I think, 19 years old. To this day, he has the highest IQ ever of a pilot in the Air Force. Hmm. And there's a famous actress now named Scarlett Johansson. It was her grandfather. Wow. He was the last pilot shot down, even though the war had been ended. Somebody didn't know what was going on, that's for sure. In fact, we were supposed to, because we were so low, they thought we could go over that low and do two missions. And he said, you go in, drop your bombs, and then come back, load again, and go out again. That never happened. Yeah. (laughs) Usually uh, we, we didn't eat there at all, but once in a while I'd have candy or something in my pocket. I used to ca- carry a candy bar or something, so that when we come down from high altitude, uh, we, we eat it. They'd issue guys Hershey bars, wouldn't they? Well, see, on high, well, we were on a mash. Mm-hmm. We didn't have pressurized ships, so uh, you couldn't eat anything. Uh, but when you come down on the way home, as soon as you get under, you know, uh, 8,000 feet or... Then, then you could take the mask off and you know, eat whatever you brought. How would you deal with thirst at that altitude? Did you guys have insulated canteens or would your water freeze? I mean, how would you're, you're flying for 12 hours. I, I imagine you got to take a little bit of water at some point. No water. Nobody mentioned it. <laughs> and I couldn't couldn't get it in where I ought to get it. Sure. And uh, you don't think about that. You just do it. Yeah. Well, as soon as we were on the way back then, when we come down, then we get a drink and get something. Don't you get it? Yeah, it's it's amazing what you yeah. get used to. We were, we were young. 
and and you get used to not having access to certain things. Um, I remember in Sid Phillips' book when he came home from the Pacific, he was at the mess hall at the base, and he went through line, and they had all these heads of iceberg lettuce, and no one's eating them. He just spent three and a half years down the Pacific, and him and his buddy just sat there and ate like five heads of cat or lettuce themselves. And I was looking, I went there crazy, but they said it'd been so long since they had had fresh greens, and now not only that, but the water content. They just each sat there and went through like five heads of lettuce. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's crazy what um, you don't think about. Uh, yeah, a lot of things that weren't, didn't seem right, but basically we did, we got it done anyway. Yeah. Well, the war ended and uh, they had a dinner served by prisoners of war, and, uh, and you weren't allowed to talk to them, no questions. And they served us a nice steak, a nice dinner. And, and I was surprised how big they all were. They all the prisoners look big. You know, well, it's because we fed them better than their own armies did. <laughs> they look good. And uh, you know, I'm I'm German, and uh, they were German. I'm, my grandfather came from Germany, so they were like me, I guess. But they were taller. <laughs> but I won. <laughs> yep. And that's, you know, yes, you had the Hitler Youth, and you had the extreme brainwashed Nazis, but a lot of the guys for the Weimar Republic, they were captured from other armies and forced to fight, or they were drafted from the government. So, you know, a lot of those guys, they they weren't suffering from the brainwashing or the indoctrination, but they were forced to fight, and so they were just doing what they had to do yeah. to survive. Well, the same in our army, you know. Yeah. If they send you in a, in a combat area and, and you don't fight, they shoot you. Yeah. So that's the way it is. And you know that. So when they hand you the gun, the enemy's that way, and you better be shooting. And that's just, every army's like that. So. Yeah, I guess where we were lucky is uh, we didn't suffer that that the Russians did, and that was being so under-equipped that they would give one guy a rifle and some ammo, give the guy behind him some ammo, have him follow the other guy, and if he got shot, he just picked up his rifle and kept on going because yeah. they were so under-armed. It's just... I can't imagine that. No. And even with the amount of weaponry we were giving them through the Lend-Lease program, they were still completely under underserved uh, so the war is over and you come home the economy's different than when you left uh, the nation's probably a little different we had to, we had the combat crews had the first choice to get out early and uh, I was released at, not soon after I got home and I came back into Syria and I completely lost how do you come home from that I mean here you are you're, you're fresh out of high school or some of the guys are you know left college not easy yes. I tried to go back to school machinist school and uh, and that was that was terrible that I nothing went right and uh, they used to give me uh, whatever I made and plus they gave me an extra hundred dollars I took the hundred dollars and bought myself a used car I was in the Air Force sure so all I know was fighting bombings and shooting at other airplanes so I don't I never had that ground I had training, but I never I actually worked on the ground. So yeah. you got back, you tried uh, mechanic school, you weren't happy with it, you got yourself a, new, a, a late model car, where'd you go next? Uh, uh, they tried to give me a bad car, and and a friend of mine was a master mechanic, and he said, I, I guess I better talk to you about this. He said, the, fellow, the gentleman that spoke to him was, a, was one of your mechanics, he swore his law. He can't lie, and uh, he, he told a lie. So they said, wait a minute. They took the car, put a rebuilt engine in it, told me it cost me 100 bucks a month, <laughs> and then we settled it. There you go. 
But he said, I want to got that. I don't think sure. of it. We didn't catch him. Trying to cheat, trying to give you the business. But, uh, and uh, so that caught that fool, I guess I was. I had it for quite a while. So what career did you get into after the war and after your military service? Oh, what did I end up? Yeah, what was your... your I became a vessel, I became a telephone man. Telephone man, huh? Yeah, I worked for a telephone company for Five. 35 years. Were you a lineman or were you doing the lines in the house? Uh, I uh, I did both. I started out on the, on the frames and then went out on the street and uh, did regular house installation. And eventually I became a... Called a PBX van, which mm-hmm. is all business. The old 99 box, huh? All systems. And that's how I spent the, most of my time putting business systems, which they don't even sell anymore. Yep. Uh, and and uh, it worked out pretty good. I'm the modern day version of you. I do IT work, I run Cat 6 Wire, and do uh, phone systems as well. So yeah. I, I uh, basically have been upgrading a lot of those older phone systems that are. Yeah, there are in yeah. some of these older offices that no one can work on anymore. Yeah, so it was good. It all turned out all right. I could, uh, eventually, you know, it took time. Yeah. Uh, well, it was new uh, technology, too. Yeah, I forget how many years it was before uh, I really got settled in real good. And, uh, but then I spent the rest of just putting, putting systems in, which I liked it there anyway. Yeah. At what point after the war did you end up getting married and having children and doing the whole family life? I don't know, let's see. Now you're asking hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> Nancy worked for the telephone company. And, uh, we met 70 years ago. Yeah, and I met her at uh, dance, at that uh, um, Oaks dance dance place. Mm-hmm. And I danced with her. Were you a good dancer? Was he a good dancer? Yeah. Hold his own? Yeah. Well, you had to be a good dancer in them days. Yeah. That's the best way to meet the girls. What was your favorite dance? Oh, no, I did, 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 did the jitterbug. Oh, I did the jitterbug, but I did the waltz, you mm-hmm. know, and, uh, and regular two-step, which they did a lot. And, uh, but I, I used to do the... Uh, we were married in 1951. Came out of the service in 45, so... We you were working for the phone company as well? Yes. I worked in the office downtown. Nice. In Philadelphia. Flyers fans, huh? <laughs> I'm trying to remember where we lived at. That apartment. Good thing I didn't wear my penguins hat today. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a place. Yeah. Came with refrigerator. Only thing it didn't work. <laughs> that, that was a low low class. If you have any piece of advice for any uh, younger folk listening to this, I don't know. Don't volunteer. Don't volunteer for anything. <laughs> I think they told should make it mandatory that all kids should go in the service or I see the kids today. Well I will say there's a high school in my town. I live down in Cape Coral and this particular high school has mandatory um, ROTC. ROTC every student. Because when I grew up you know they had to volunteer and the people who did that sometimes when they had to wear the uniforms the other kids would kind of make fun of them but at this high school everybody as a freshman has to to go through it and so the seniors you know no one you know, there's no joking around because everybody's been through it. And, and then that whole school gets a little bit of that discipline. And I guess when you go there for graduation or any sort of school ceremony, there's ROTC guys there in the uniforms and doing the whole thing. And so it's it's really well put together. That's cool. 
Well, George, I appreciate your time. I, appreciate I hope I remembered, remembered everything. It was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I'm sad because I almost wore my shirt today. I have a mine's a little bright, <laughs> <in, laughs> but you're wearing your beautiful Hawaiian shirt with the B-17s on it, and um, I picked yeah. one up out in Texas. Yeah, it has um, planes oh, on yeah. it. Before you came home, were you able to uh, finagle any souvenirs off of anybody to bring home with you? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't bring any. Uh, I. I went over. I got rid of most of it yeah. overseas. I had a the reason was that uh, I had a radio. I found a, a radio that was a, a field radio, mm -hmm. and I thought, "Geez, that'd be a nice souvenir." Then I heard that some of the stuff was uh, sabotaged, oh. and it just turned the right way, boom. Yeah. And I thought maybe any that's risky. And it worth it? That'd be my luck. My grandfather worked grave registration. And uh, the one thing that I got so far, because my uncle has a lot of the stuff, he brought back the first aid box that went mount up underneath the dashboard in the Jeeps, and so I have that that he brought back. Wow. Actually, he doesn't really, he wouldn't go back to for any of the trips to England. He didn't yeah. want to do anything. I, I have no need to see all over it. <laughs> yeah. Well, war's over. This is my country. Yeah. And I fought for it. That's all. Right, so and we all thank you for it. Oh, I thank you guys for being that, that grace, gracious. Very nice. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>